Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome back. Welcome back to the uh, Hayek Auditorium. I'm George Selgin. I'm uh, the director of Cato's Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. And uh, it's, it's my great pleasure, and I, I really mean that, <laughs> to introduce Sir Paul Tucker. Uh, it's my pleasure, but I've got to admit, it's not particularly easy. Uh, Sir Paul's CV kind of reminds me of Manmohan Singh's uh, chart earlier of the plumbing of the repo market. It's, uh, <laughs> it's got lots of stuff in it. It's very complicated. The good news is that unlike uh, our uh, markets uh, today, uh, it doesn't have a lot of orange rust on it. On the contrary, it's a very nice shiny CV. Uh, today, Paul is uh, a fellow at uh, Harvard's Kennedy School and also a senior fellow at uh, its Center for European Studies. He's also chair of the international uh, organization known as the Systemic Risk Council. It's a group of experts who worry about systemic risk and recommend steps that can be taken to contain it. Paul has held positions at all the major international financial organizations, BIS, uh, the, uh, uh, he's, he's had a post at the ECB, if I'm not mistaken, at uh, the World Bank or the IMF. I'm probably leaving some stuff out. But for most of his career, he was uh, at the Bank of England starting in 1980 and remaining there until 2013, his last four years, he was deputy governor of the Bank of England. And so he has had a little bit of experience with uh, financial uh, markets and monetary policy during times of distress, to put it mildly. Um, by the way, Sir, uh, Paul's responsibilities of the Bank of England included both financial stability and monetary policy, which makes me kind of wonder what everybody else there was doing. <laughs> uh, but he's not just uh, a great uh, hands-on central banker. Paul's also a, a great central banking scholar and, and uh, the, the great, outs the outstanding Evidence of that is his recent book, Unelected Power, The Quest for Legitimacy in Central Banking and the Regulatory State. And yes, I have read it. It is as long as War and Peace. Uh, if if, if a, a book that's not fiction can be as intriguing and exciting as that, uh, this one uh, does it. Uh, it starts with a very simple observation, a factual observation which is that central banks are, to use Paul's words, the epitome of unelected power. Well, that's kind of true, isn't it? And if you realize that, and I think a lot of people implicitly realize it, if not explicitly, of course it raises all kinds of questions. How can that be justified? Should it be justified? Under what circumstances? because we've got a tremendous conflict here between, on the one hand, the desire to keep 
a safe distance between politics and central banking, because at least most of us in this room believe that when those things get too blended together, bad things happen to monetary policy. On the other hand, many of us in this room also believe that free societies should not have powers that are unanswerable to the electorate. And, uh, well, if you don't think that's worth a book this thick, then you are not thinking as much about those problems as Sir Paul Tucker. I'd also like to just read a quote from uh, the Wall Street Journal's Joe Sternberg about this book. Joe called it one of the most perceptive books on central banking in recent years. Well, I would add to that just one uh, detail. I would say, yes, since 1837. <laughs> Sir Paul. Well... Thank you very much, George, and thank you, Jim, for inviting me to be here. It's a real, it's a real treat. Um, I've got a few slides, not, not many. Most, most of the slides are going to be quotes initially, and then later on they're going to be some stuff about central banking when I, when I reach um, central banking. So the debate about whether central banks should be independent, insulated from politics, is typically couched almost entirely expressed almost entirely in the language of economics. And I don't think that will do. And it's not just that I don't think it will do in principle, is that I don't think that is sufficient to find central banks, independent central banks, a safe place in a healthy constitutional um, democracy. I think the debate has to um, open a door to our deepest political values constitutionalism, representative democracy, and the rule of law. So when Jim asked me to give a speech entitled Central Banking and the Rule of Law, I was, I was delighted. In, in Munich at the Siemensstiftung earlier this year, I gave a lecture, a much longer lecture on central banking and constitutionalism. I now just need to find one on central banking and democracy. Actually, democracy will come up in what I've got to to say as when it's balanced with the values of the, of the rule of law. So the two quotes there are saying Milton Friedman uh, marking the anniversary of the Federal Reserve, 50th anniversary in the early 1960s, saying, is this an objectionable fourth um, branch? The, t- the tone of, of, of Friedman's testimony was, well, it pr- probably is, and that's, and that's a bad um, thing. I will try and persuade you that it isn't a... Um, a fourth branch. And then Larry Summers saying institutions can do the work of rules and monetary rules should be avoided. Instead, institutions should be drafted to solve time and consistency problems, which is expressed, which is the language of economics starts to meet something kind of beyond economics. And I will, I may say something if I have time about how there's a gap in that and also a gap in the economics literature. Um, about this. And then then Henry Simons in the 1930s, delegation to administrative authorities with substantial discretionary power must be invoked sparingly. And if democratic institutions are to be preserved, it is utterly inappropriate in the monetary um, field. And um, I think we should take that seriously, even though I'm not going to land in the same place. In fact, I think in some respects, he was deeply mistaken. 
Um, but there's no doubting the power of central banks, the, the personal people who control the monetary levers have the, have the power, the capability of imposing surprise inflation or deflation on the society. And that's a measure of taxation that redistributes resources. The lender of last resort might in principle be able to choose between winners and losers. A central bank who can choose their counterparties, their collateral, um, the terms of their lending facilities has it within their capability to steer credit um, to certain places and away from certain places. And then finally, a central bank um, who is also a supervisor and a regulator um, is also a lawmaker. We, we, regulation is a kind of euphemism. Regulations are legally binding norms that can be enforced with the coercive power of the state. That's what lawmaking is. So this is quite a, this is quite a bundle of, of, of powers. Um, so why, under what circumstances might it be tolerable, even more than tolerable, under what circumstances might it even be important to have an independent monetary authority? So let's change, let's move away from economics entirely and think about our deep, deep political values. Typically, when we talk about the separation of powers, these days people tend to have in mind the separation between an independent judiciary and the rest of, of government. Um, in the 13th century in my country, um, barons rose up and said, the king will not, shall not, impose taxes on people without that being supported in an assembly. And um, this is a, another profound part of the separation of powers. So it means that if you hold the monetary power, if the king, the president, the queen, prime minister, the chancellor, holds the monetary power, they don't need to go to Congress or Parliament um, for supply. Um, they don't need to get approval for their projects. They can just create the resources um, to fund things themselves. Um, the last people, the last people who should um, have control of the monetary levers are the elected um, executive um, branch, which is actually saying something. Many people in this room, about half people in this room, probably the same age as me. And if you think that in most, most advanced economy countries, without an independent central bank in the 70s and 80s, um, when monetary policy went wrong, um, it was partly because it was precisely under the control of the elected executive branch. This was not only bad economic policy, this was a violation of our deepest, um, our deepest um, values of the separation of fiscal powers. Um, so if that's the case, um, we can think of the old gold standard, um, the 19th century gold standard, not the gold exchange standard of the 20th century. We can think of the old um, gold standard as an earlier era's attempt to, to capture, to preserve the separation of powers in the, in the monetary field. Whenever um, sterling came off, went back on to the gold standard during the 19th century wars and financial crises, this was done with parliamentary um, sanction, not on the will of the, of the prime minister. Um, the gold standard, therefore, was not only quite a good economic framework, it actually 
was consistent with our deep values. Now, I'm one of those people that think under full franchise democracy, um, the gold standard could never gain acceptance because it entails more volatility um, in jobs and output than the people would be prepared to tolerate. I think the gold standard was, the, was an artifact of essentially property-owning um, democracies. There's room for disagreement about that. But if, 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 that, if something like that is correct, then we should see um, the delegation to, a, to an independent central bank as an attempt to sustain the separation of powers, the separation of fiscal powers in a world with, um, with fiat money at the pleasure, at the behest and at the pleasure of the assembly. So far from Milton Friedman's complaint that it's a fourth branch, it isn't a full, full branch, fourth branch because Congress or Parliament or the Bundestag can take it away and resort to monetary um, financing. Some of this was a bit implicit in what David was saying in the last session. And far from being objectionable, it is actually a way of underpinning some of our deepest values. Now, there's then a question of, of um, which I would skate over very quickly, as why would it work? So everybody in the room will know the Kidland Prescott literature. Um, and and we'll also know that when you get to the um, Ken Rogoff's conservative central banker or Carl Walsh's contract, the time inconsistency problem is, is um, merely relocated. Ben McCallum wrote a great paper on that a long time ago. But actually, the, the problem is, is absolutely at the heart of Kittle and Prescott's great paper itself. So a rule can do better. But, but why does anyone bother to follow the rule? Um, Larry Summers says institutions can do the work of, of rules. What is it? What is it? That's, well, why can they? Why can they? Um, that literature is utterly silent on that. It's just a, the papers just assume that this thing will, will follow the rule or, or, or target the given, um, the inflation target or whatever um, it is in those, in those papers. And I, again, I think we have to move away from economics to think about this. I think if you, I think, and the answer lies in part if you marry the Alessina Tabellini papers on, on delegation with um, older political theory traditions of Republican honor or esteem. If you, if you have, if you delegate power um, to somebody who, who's, um, who cares more about the values, more the esteem that they will, that will accrue to them by delivering the mandate. They value that more than their next job or popularity or their own view of the public good if, if they um, the value, the esteem that can, get, that can accrue to them from delivering the mandate and if the society is capable of bestowing that esteem well, then maybe you have the ingredients for delegation of some kind or the operation of a rule um, to, to work. That's a big ask, by the way. You could imagine that societies might lose the capability of bestowing esteem and honor on people who are in receipt of, of delegation. And the reason I'm saying this is that I think the preconditions for any of these institutions to work um, are barely debated in the economics literature at all, with the exception, actually, of Suzanne Lohmann 
and some of the people that, that bridge the gap between political economy, economics, and political science. Um, but let, let's imagine that central bank independence in some form can um, help to sustain some of our de deepest values and can work. Well, goodness, it's still incredibly powerful for all of the reasons that I said, and therefore we should want to um, constrain it, and we should want to constrain it not just with some laundry list of things that George and I think up while we're going for a walk or some two different people think up. We should want to constrain it with things that flow from the values of the rule of law and constitutionalism and um, democracy. So this is where the rule of law comes in. So let's think about the three big elements of the rule of law. Um, no one is above the law, so the law applies to the sovereign and to government. That's, that's dicey in modern times. The, the law should be predictable and general and clear and so on. It's very important to Hayek, but it's in Lon Fuller as well. And the processes of the law should be fair. That's actually the history of my country and that you absorbed here in various um, ways. Now, um, law and rules. Hayek, um, who's been mentioned a number of times, would put great, great stress on the law as a system of, of rules. But if one's allowed to say this name here, I'm not actually terribly fond of his work myself. Rawls also conceived of, of law as a system of rules. It's, it's there in black and white in, in the theory of justice. And, and why? But for both it's to, to eliminate and constrain discretion. But to constrain discretion entirely, the, a rule, any rule, um, any legal rule would have to be mechanical. What does a mechanical law rule mean? A mechanical rule, Wittgenstein somewhere in the background here, but I was too self-disciplined to footnote him in my book, um, is, is that we would all agree very quickly that the application of, of the rule in every single set of circumstances was obvious. That is what a that is what a mechanical rule would be. And as soon as we move away from that, as soon as Charlie or George and I can have a different view on how, what the rule might mean in certain circumstances or how it should be applied, well, well then we're into interpretation and judgment and that's where the value of fair procedures um, kicks in. So this leads to the, almost the biggest question of all. Um, which is who should apply the law. So the, ben the benchmark, um, particularly for people um, of a libertarian um, bent, would be, well, the benchmark should be a legal code passed by a, an assembly and applied via the courts. And you could have specialist judges subject to ju judicial review by um, generalist judges. Um, but that would be the benchmark. And so any, and if, if to the extent that people in the room place weight on that view, then any departures from it need to be justified. They need to be justified in ways that can be made, make sense to people. So one way of moving away from that benchmark would be the argument advanced by Henry Friendly, the judge, in the early 1960s, which is that incremental policymaking um, common law type policy making, whether by a judge or a regulatory agency, um, 
always develops an implicit policy, um, a principle, um, a general policy, and yet we can't see what that is in advance, and so it'd be better if the regulatory agency writes down a rule in advance. Well, that's not something that a court can do, so, so that would be a case for delegation um, rather than having the application of the law entirely in the hands of the, of the courts. You can get to the same place by thinking about the values of democracy. There are, there are some areas um, where revealed preference, um, not economic revealed preference, political or governmental revealed preference suggests that actually we want there to be public consultation and debate about the development of a rule, or we, or we want there to be ex post accountability in the application of, of a rule of some kind. Accountability in the precise sense of the person who has applied the rule and developed the rule going and sitting in front of Congress or in front of a committee of the House of Commons, as I did many, many times, explaining what they were thinking when they developed um, that rule and policy. That's not something a judge um, can do. So by the way, the, the, these arguments um, are not very far away um, from the arguments about where the limits of common law lawmaking should be articulated by a man called Tom Bingham, um, who is, I think, the only person in English history to have been the Lord Chief Justice, the Master of the Rolls, and the President of what's now called the Supreme um, Court, and has a lovely little book called um, The Rule of Law, which is worth... After, you, after you've bought mine, you should... You should it doesn't matter, doesn't matter whether you read mine, just buy it. Um, you, you, should you should definitely meet, read um, Tom Bingham's. So, I've, I've, I've got us to a point where, with a bit of sleight of hand, I don't think there's sleight of hand in the book, I've got us away from the benchmark to a world where there are delegated agencies that aren't courts developing policies, filling out the the details, but we still want them to be constrained. And this is where the debate, which will be familiar to people here, between rules and standards comes in. So just in case anybody doesn't know the difference between a rule and a standard, I'm going to start off with banking policy. Monetary policy is slightly richer. So in, in banking policy, a rule would, might look something like, licensed banks must maintain tangible common equity as defined, in another clause, of at least X percent of to total assets as defined. Whereas a standard might say licensed banks must manage their affairs prudently and maintain capital adequate to remain safe and sound in stress states of the world. With monetary policy, we can, we can enrich that a bit. A rule for an objective might say monetary policy should be set so as to achieve an annual rate of inflation as defined of Y percent. A standard might say monetary policy should be set so as to maintain price stability and full employment over the medium to long run. A rule for an instrument might say, the policy interest rate as defined shall be set according to the formula um, F. Um, now Hayek, of course, um, would have preferred, well, we can't be sure what he would have preferred, um, but people, people that, but Hayekian followers think that he would have preferred a rule for the for the instruments. So this is, this is one of the reasons that people prefer a, want a, something like the Taylor Rule to be legislated. And by the way, I think just as a kind of a meta comment on all of my remarks, the Fed's objections to doing that are always couched entirely in terms of the economics, whereas I think 
they haven't tuned into, some of the advocates of a legislating a Taylor rule are thinking in terms of the values of the rule of law. And unless, unless you engage with the debate at that level, you have failed to engage with the force of the point, even the content of the point that is being made. Now, now people on the standard side of the argument um, would say, well, the problem with, with um, that's all very well, um, but we don't actually know how to write down a rule that will work in all weathers. I mean, David was trying to address that point earlier, but he's got two kinds of weather in his, in his rule. Um, and therefore it would be a mistake to legislate it. And then turning to banking policy, they'd say, well, the problem with a rule is that it, it sets free the regulatory arbitrage that would undermine its very, very being. But that leaves the debate open and contested, and I'm not going to come down on one side or the other in that. I am, though, going to suggest that there's something else going on, in a, in a, which is the, about the val how the values of democracy need to be combined with the values of the rule of law. Um, if a legislature in a constitutional democracy sets a rule, I think the legislators should understand that rule and be capable of explaining it to an interested member of the public. I don't think that follows from the values of the rule of law. I think it follows from the values of democracy. I am prepared to assert, and therefore I could easily be wrong, but my belief would be, my prior would be, that the members of the relevant committees here or in London could not explain the equilibrium um, real rate of interest to people. If I, if I asked whether it could be observed or not, I think they would be um, a little bit flustered. If I asked them whether it was actually imaginary or not, and in what, in what terms it really meant, think Woodford, um, I think that they would be more stuck. I do think that if that they could explain to a member of the public why high and variable inflation mattered, um, and I do think they could explain why targeting inflation was a reasonable way of going about that. Now, now say I'm say I'm right about that. I may be wrong, um, but say I'm right about that. The, the underlying point is that, again, this isn't about economics. This is about our deepest political values, but here where the values of democracy have to be um, put together um, with the values of the rule of law and of constitutionalism. Right, I, I shall now quickly say something about um, central banking, and, and then I will say something, in, in some respects, I think is the most important thing in, in the book about United States, about whether there's any chance of any of this happening in the US. Um, so first of all, I am, I'm going to assert that, um, again, in the book defended over two chapters in part four, that the monetary authority is inevitably the lender of last resort to the economy, um, and, and that the lender of last resort unavoidably has an interest in and a role in the setting and application of prudential policy um, and supervision, and then that the values of the rule of law, and I would say of democracy, require that that role be formalized. And you might be saying, well, yeah, it is. Yeah, you know, the Federal Reserve's got those roles, and it's in law. That is not true in Germany. It's not true in Japan. In Germany and Japan, both cases, the central bank is de facto a supervisor, but without its role being set out in 
um, clearly in law. So I, 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 I perceive of the, um, I make a case for the mission of a, um, an independent monetary authority being twofold. Stability, stability of the monetary system with two parts, stability in the value of central bank money in terms of goods and services, and stability of banking system deposit money in terms of central bank money. That, that does not mean that individual banks can't go bust. And then I think, and those of you that like Buchanan and the ordo liberals will find an echo in not just the language but the substance up to a point here, that I think this should be framed, as it were, in a money credit constitution. In a world where, where um, fractional reserve banking exists, is permitted, there may be some people in the audience, I think almost certainly some people in the audience, that think fractional reserve banking should not be permitted, and that's fine, but so long as it is, we need to constrain it with our political values. Um, we need not just Buchanan's money constitution, but a money credit constitution. And I would say that a, a modern one would have five elements. A target for inflation or some other nominal magnitude. David would have a different nominal magnitude. A requirement to hold reserves or assets that can readily be exchanged into reserves that increases with the riskiness of the borrowers. Personally, I would now make banks cover all of their short-term liabilities with assets, the discounted value of assets that could be taken to the Fed or the Bank of England. Um, a liquidity reinsurance regime, which is connects, that's I've just connected two and three. A resolution regime for bankrupt banks that was missing under the 19th century gold standard and constraints on how far the central bank is free to pursue its mandate and to structure its balance sheet. And this is this last bit is where the rules of the law, uh, the rule of law values kick in. And I will just go through some. Um, I haven't got on the slide. First of all, whatever the central bank does, whatever its discretionary powers are, however limited, as lots of people here would like, or wider, as some other people would like, I think the central bank should articulate um, the principles that will guide and constrain the exercise of its discretion. And I think that is a precondition for operating a systematic policy. So, just to run through a few things. If it were to be the case that possibly for the reasons I've suggested, Congress or Parliament should not legislate, uh, mandate a, an instrument rule. At the very least, even so, the central bank should itself articulate um, a rule or rules against which it can be monitored. When I was a staffer at the Bank of England, I was head of something called Monetary Assessment and Strategy Division, a great job actually, in the mid to late 90s. I regularly briefed our monetary policy committee on what was implied by a Taylor rule and what was implied by um, a McCullum rule. And I think we used to put that into the minutes as well, which I think partly because I used to write the minutes during that period or help write the minutes. Um, so that would be one. Um, for balance sheet operations, the central bank should keep its operations and balance sheet as simple and as small as possible, consistent with achieving its objectives and any distributive effects should be cooked into the delegation and not the result of discretionary choices. There's a whole chapter on that in the book with lots more constraints. The lender of last resort um, should not lend to firms that it knows or should know to be fundamentally insolvent because to do so is to exercise a fiscal power. For prudential policy, they should be given a clear mandate 
to achieve a monitorable standard for the resilience of the system as a whole so that we can track from outside whether or not they are doing the job they've been set. I think that's quite hard to do. Across the board, they should not exceed their powers during an emergency. Um, they should exercise self-restraint. So this comes down to contracting completeness. If you think one of the virtues of the judiciary, at least away from this country, is that um, is they exercise great self-restraint outside the, the, the courtroom. And actually in court, they, they restrain the number of obiter dicta that they espouse. That's not so true here anymore. And accountability, they should be transparent in all things. Now, is it going to happen? Um, here's a big deal. At least I think it's a big deal. So I don't think there is anything in the U US Constitution, big C now for the first time, that constrains um, the application in this country of the kind of thing that I've described and that I more carefully describe in the book, and things like it. I think it is most unlikely to happen. And I think it is most unlikely to happen for a very deep and disturbing reason. And the, the mark of a good constitutional rule of law set up with or without democracy is that it should not only be incentives compatible, kind of core idea in economics on which people have won the Nobel Prize over, over the last 20, 30 years, but that it should also be values compatible. It should be the constitution um, should set up incentives which produce processes and results which are consistent with the values that animate the constitution, um, the constitutional setup itself. Um, I think that's a struggle here. I think that um, Congress has very powerful incentives um, not to, not to um, legislate. Let me give you an example. So there's still formally a doctrine in this country um, that power should not be delegated um, without an intelligible principle. This is called the non-delegation doctrine. Um, last applied um, markedly, I wonder what adverb to use, markedly I'm going to say, in the, in the mid-1930s. Um, it's kind of fallen into abeyance. Most delegations in this country have immensely um, um, vague terms, multiple competing objectives which the agency has to balance um, themselves. One way, one way through this would be to distinguish, as the court has, has never done, between truly independent agencies like the Fed, who are truly independent in the sense that the policymakers have job security and they don't have to go to Congress for their money and they can't be directed how to use their powers, from agencies such as the SEC and the CFTC and the FTC and the FCC, who are described as independent but actually have to go to Congress each year for their money. I don't think that's a bad thing, by the way, but they have to do it, and so they're, they're not insulated from politics at all. Um, and then from other agencies um, that, where the president can get out of bed and sack the head of the EPA or other executive agencies as he or she wishes. Well, my, I think the non-delegation doctrine could be revived and should be revived for tr the very few truly independent agencies that this country has and for the rather more truly independent agencies that various countries in Europe have. But I don't think it will. And that's because, as I say, I think Congress has very limited incentives to legislate in detail because it takes effort and it, it, it sheds less blame. 
And the courts have very powerful incentive, the court itself, the top court, has very powerful incentives to let things carry on like that rather than substitute themselves as the supreme legislature. That was what the struggle between Roosevelt and Hughes was partly um, about. And yet, of course, that's incentive compatible, a world in which Congress um, passes stat statutes, delegating statutes with very vague objectives, and the courts let it pass, is incentive compatible for everybody involved, but it is not compatible with the values that animate or are supposed to animate the Constitution um, itself. And I think it is a very serious state of affairs, and I don't think it's anything to do with the current um, goings-on. Um, to have a constitution which may not be incentives values compatible. Now, if that's the case, I'd hope to be wrong on that, by the way. If that's the case, then the Fed itself must do everything it can to fill the gap. Um, it must try and infer what the values of the constitution properly applied um, would entail and set out a program over a number of years where it lives by those um, values. And organizations like Cato, and I think organizations in other parts of politics can have a shared interest um, in this. And we have a shared interest in this on our side of the Atlantic. Thank you very much. No, it's my fault, my fault. No, no, everyone's thinking, my God, we didn't want to hear any of that. You had a remark on central bank balance sheets. You mentioned central bank operations. Uh, the balance should be as simple and as small as possible, consistent with achieving its objectives, etc., etc. Could you remark on the trend which some of the major central banks have taken? Is this delegation or is this discretionary, the way some of these balance sheets have ballooned in the last five to seven years? It's somewhere in between. I mean, in when, I, when I was in office, I was in office in, in the run-up to the crisis and through the crisis, it was why quantitative easing and the other asset purchases in the UK, we suggested a structure where the general approach would have to be approved by the executive branch and exposed to, to parliament. The, I, I don't think there is something called monetary policy and something called fiscal policy rooted in the laws of economics or natural law or something. I think there are unelected monetary policy makers and elected fiscal policy makers with a, with, a, with a boundary produced by convention in between. And you need to decide where that boundary should be. But when, when you are in the fuzzy area, you need to acknowledge that. And you can, you can set up a structure in the way that we, the Bank of England, um, did without that compromising your independence. I mean, the amount of QE we did was entirely our decisions. That QE happened, although we were allowed to buy certain types of bond, was a decision which the government had to, um, had to endorse. Now, that was a simpler world than the world that the previous panel was um, talking about, where 
central banks may be persistently close to the zero lower um, bound. I, I, I have reservations about the kind of plan aired by the BlackRock people. Um, and I don't say it's impossible, but it's hard. Polit politics is a brutal business. If you, if you, I mean, really, really brutal business. If you, if you need something from them, um, they will work out how to extract something they would like from you. So imagine a world where um, there's going to be this helicopter money where um, the central banker produces an amount of money M, and they have they're going to spend it in a particular way, and you print it, and then they. Um, and then they change the composition of their fiscal package with a different multiplier. Um, do, you, do you withdraw it? Do you withdraw um, some of it? Just think, you know, and you think, if you think through about four or five cases like that, you'll think, actually, this is a world where there's a new time, time um, consistency problem, which is how can the fiscal policymakers promises about how she or he will spend the money, um, be kept rather than, rather than changed. And it may not be the multiplier. They may just channel the money away to something with a, um, a different multiplier but that favors one part of society over, the, over another. And the rest of society says, what? The central bank facilitated helping states whose who's, who's, Name begins with the initial M, taking money away from states that, whose name is different, or any variant of that that you would, would like. And I think the people that wrote that paper, I mean, I think they've generated an idea, but I don't think they've set out a policy. I was brought up by Eddie George, um, who was a great central bank governor, to think if you haven't got a principle behind it, you haven't got a policy, and if you haven't thought how to operationalize it, um, You've got an idea, but not a policy. I think they've got an idea, but not a policy. Bill? So this isn't so much a question as it is a request for your comment, but I think you'll have some observations on this. I was at a... Uh, uh, workshop, FSB workshop recently, and I, I asked a senior officer of the Federal Reserve, I said, uh, you are simultaneously talking about opening a standing repo facility in order to make sure that banks are uh, confident that they can borrow from the central bank, while uh, suggesting that the branches of foreign banks be subject to a new liquidity requirement because they borrowed from the central bank during the crisis, even though they did so in accordance with the rules and paid the money back. Yeah, and I said, what exactly is the, you know, the Fed's policy with respect to lending? And the officer said, we don't really like to talk about it. <laughs> so, uh, Well, that's not very good. <laughs> if, you're, if, you, if you're not prepared to talk about it, you probably haven't thought it through properly. And if you haven't thought it through properly, then you probably don't have a policy. I mean, the, the, when people talk about the virtues of transparency, as I did just, um, they talk about accountability and economic efficiency. But it's also the best managerial device you can possibly think of. Before I was a policymaker for, I know, a dozen years, I was a staffer for 20 years. If you headed a division where the, where the work was going to be published, you, you tried harder. And so they, I am not confident. It's, I am not confident that when a central bank can't, isn't prepared to explain itself, that it has actually thought things 
through. I'm also actually, in that particular case, I'm not convinced that they have thought things um, through. The other, the other oh, I'm allowed over to dicta. Um, having said central office holders shouldn't, I don't think, is that this business of foreign banks versus um, domestic banks, this is geopolitics. If the United States wants to, um, the dollar to pers persist as the world's reserve currency, um, <coughs> then it is quite important to accept um, the consequence that that entails being the lender of last resort and to set out clearly in advance the conditions on which that will be, on that will be so. Andy. Okay, well, <laughs> no, it's really fascinating talk. Um, so we're trying to think about how to help Congress oversee the Fed, and you kind of talked about these incentive compatibility problems. It seems to me, looking at other kinds of institutions like corporations, that an obvious thing to help Congress is to have an in, another independent agency with a bunch of experts that come in once a year and do a comprehensive review of the head of that agency or the team of experts decide which issues they want to focus on. And some years it might be balance sheet tools, other years it might be IVR. Um, sometimes it might be, um, uh, you know, uh, changing the inflation target or makeup strategy. And, and they would write a report and present it to Congress. Um, and the agency gets to respond and say, well, here's the things we agree. Here's the things we've already done as we were consulting with that independent agency. Um, we've already taken care of that. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Other ones where we disagree with their conclusions. But that seems like it'd be an obvious way forward to help Congress. Congress by itself might not have to do much more work. They've just told a couple more hearings a year, which they don't probably mind doing. Um, doesn't that seem like an obvious way? So I think something like that could be a good idea. I think it'd be very important if there were such a body that the people that were, um, that were on it were manifestly in their last jobs. Anyone that's young and is in the market for another job in politics um, will be playing to this year's Senate chair or next year's potential Senate chair in terms of what they want. So you just shift the question, why should I believe in the independence of the monitor? Beware, beware of people that independent, supposedly independent agencies who are young. No, um, youth has many, many virtues, like, which I can vaguely recall. Um, but it, it has, it has one, of its, one of its greatest virtues is its ambition. And ambition is there to be exploited by those in power. This is, this is and in your country, this is, the mechanism for this is through the Senate. And in my country, it tends to be through the Treasury. But that's because patronage works in, in France. It's the palace, the Elysee Palace, around the president. But have no doubt, have no doubt, just count the Senate staffers, many of them my friends who serve on commissions. And don't, so these people are part of a client um, system. So, so your idea is a good one depending on how it's designed. The other thing I would say is if short of that, if one wanted an improvement, it would be senators sitting through the whole of a hearing, all of them. When I, when I, when I used to testify with Mervyn already in front of the House of Commons Treasury Committee, they would all stay, 11 of them or whatever it was, 
And apart from the people that were new, which is understandable, they, they would act as a bipartisan tag team. You've got me on the ropes, you know, and I don't know what to say, and it's been revealed that I'm a puff of smoke or something, and you're timed out, and it moves to Charlie. If Charlie changes the subject, I'm fine. If Charlie thinks I'm going to abandon the script that I've been given by the staff because Andy was onto something, then you've got a hearing. And actually, um, there's interesting research comparing the effectiveness of House of Commons hearings with congressional um, hearings um, in terms of sticking to the subject and how discursive it is. And, and I'm pleased to say that London came out better. And it wasn't always comfortable that this confronted us with a short-term versus long-term thing. We thought that testimony was the single most important and useful thing that we did in terms of preserving the legitimacy of the institution, even though it could be very uncomfortable. Most pe Fed people I've spoken to over the past 30, 40 years do not think about testifying to Congress um, like that. But that's partly because the senators... You know, I've done my bit by going off to do some fundraising or whatever senators um, do. And that is not disrespectful to them. It's that, you know, with so much power delegated, oversight, monitoring the overseers. And I think here you have long suffered from the lack of a national broadsheet press. So, you know, in, in the UK, the, the, pre the media, the press, the broadsheet press are overseeing the quality of the oversight done by the... Um, House of Commons committees. So I, do, I, I am not against your idea, but one has to think about, so what incentives and dynamics does it, does it set up? Designing institutions is just terribly hard. Thank you very much.